All right. Well, I, I've had a lot of time to think about that this week. I was uh, down south with my parents. They had some damage in the hurricane, and I saw people step up, and they were just really brave and really bold and helped people out. When I think about this subject, I think about some soldiers, possibly. Here's a picture of the uh, Army Airborne Division sitting in a helicopter and uh, looking out over. They carry guns and jump out of helicopters. I mean, that's brave, isn't it? Come on. That, that's a big deal. How about this guy? This guy here, he's uh, at New Smyrna Beach in Florida, the shark bite capital of the world. And he has no idea that there's a shark jumping out of the water behind him. I don't know if that's brave or stupid. I, I can't. Now, this next picture I want to show you real quick. This is a new trend. I don't know where, but this is called monkey beard. I don't know if that's brave or bold. But before you show this next picture, guys, there was a lady this week who did something so brave and so bold. I mean, the entire globe got to see this. And I thought it took amazing courage to do what she did. Would you show them this picture? You see that hat? I... I cannot believe that she, no, I'm, I don't know anything about that stuff, but I want to talk to you today about stomping out fear and the fear of failure. I want to take you to a place in the early church, in your Bible, that maybe you've not explored before, and I want to show you a time in the life of the church where they had to come face-to-face with some fears, some face-to-face with some insecurities, and there was a lot writing on this. There was a, this is a big deal in the early church, and in fact, because they navigated it well, we all now are recipients of what they did. We get to have church. Those of us that didn't grow up in a Jewish culture or with a Jewish heritage, those the Bible would call us Gentiles, we get to now be a part of what God's doing in the world because of what we're going to study, look at today. And when we look at it, what you're going to hear is a couple of things. You're going to hear what the early church leaders did, like that first generation right after Jesus, what they did to navigate an emotionally draining issue. The kind of thing that has shipwrecked a lot of churches. In fact, the subject we're going to talk about today is the reason why a lot of you guys quit going to church when you were an adult and could make your own decision and your mommy and daddy didn't make you go anymore. It's why a lot of your neighbors would say, yeah, I'm okay with God, but I don't really think that church is the place that I can go and find out answers I really need. The early church struggled with some of the same issues that we struggle with today, and they navigated this well, and they didn't let their fear keep them from pressing in. They didn't let their insecurities keep them from pressing in. They didn't let the fact that there was, this was a big deal and if they failed it could make for catastrophic waves throughout the movement, they didn't let that keep them from moving forward. Let me catch you up a little bit of history before we turn to that passage. See, Jesus had come to this earth and gave his life. And when people heard him teach, they were changed. They saw his miracles. They were changed. But one thing happened in the life and death of Jesus that just made well, it made it more real than anybody could have ever imagined. He gave his life on a cross, and hundreds of people saw that. And then in the next few months after his death, people saw him alive. We call that the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrated it last week. And when you read in your Bible, in the book of Acts, and at the end of each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see people who interacted with the Jesus who was dead on a cross, but who's alive now. And that changed everything. All the early followers of Jesus were eyewitnesses of the dead Jesus who was alive, or they knew somebody who had seen him with their very own eyes. They didn't read their Bible and go, oh, I think I believe. No, they talked to people who were there, people who had credibility, and they heard their story and went, there's something unique about this. And the movement of Jesus began to grow. Now, the early followers of Jesus were all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish, all of his disciples were Jewish, and originally Christianity was just a movement within Judaism. It was a movement that said, rather than following God by the rules and regulations of our scriptures, we have a way to approach God through what the Bible calls grace. That is, God loves us and accepts us and will take us right as we are, whether we measure up or not. 
whether we're perfect or not, whether we follow the rules or not, we can begin a relationship with God. Now, this was radical. This was different. Because everybody who originally followed Jesus, they knew how you connected with God. They had their Bible. We call it our Old Testament. They call it the law. They had their law, which was five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those five books, there were the Ten Commandments. And everybody knew about the Ten Commandments. I mean, we, we know about the Ten Commandments. We generally think they're good. We just don't follow them. Um, but they had, their, they had the Ten Commandments, and they had 613 rules, another 600 rules on top of the Ten Commandments. And every Jewish young man and young lady was schooled in understanding those rules and tried to live their life. And they believed, they sincerely believed, that if they could attain some type of moral perfection, some type of behavioral standard, then that would secure in them a relationship with God and bring to them the kind of life that God would want for them. That's how every follower of Jesus originally began. That was their culture. That was their understanding. And so when the resurrection happened and they were all in Jerusalem, all doing the thing... Well, it was pretty easy because it was a really homogenous group of people. But it didn't stay that way. See, God caused one special Jewish young man who was very proud of his service to God. His name was Saul. Saul was so proud of his service to God. And he saw this growing group of Christ followers, these Christians. And he looked at them and said, they're not doing it right. We need to take them out. And so the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities got together and they empowered Paul, Saul, that's his name right now, it's going to be changed to Paul. They empowered Saul to go about and to persecute these followers of Jesus. So he goes all up and down the little country there that we call Israel now and Palestine, right? There. He went all up and down that region persecuting Christians. And the reason why he did that is because the Jewish authorities had a deal with the Roman authorities. It went like this, Rome, you're bigger than us and you could wipe us out. But we'll take care of our people. We'll kind of keep the peace among our people because they can be troublemakers. They don't follow your gods. They don't like your taxes. They don't like your way. But we'll keep peace among our people if you just kind of stay out of our business. So there was like this delicate balance between Rome and the Jewish authorities. And this young upstart branch of Judaism called Christianity was threatening to, well, upset the balance of power. So Saul was sent out. And he began to persecute Christians, but something wild happened to him. One day on his way to do some persecution, the Bible says he's blinded by a light. You remember that rock song, Blinded by the Light? That's the only, that's the only line of that song I know, but it's really cool. Um, and so that's a vague cultural reference right there, all right? Blinded by the light, he falls down on his knees, and his life is forever changed. I mean, his story becomes like the metaphorical, ultimate story of people who are going in one direction and their lives are changed. That's what happens to Saul. His name is changed to Paul. And the guy who was persecuting these Christians now becomes one himself. And all the traveling he was doing to kind of preserve the Jewish heritage and the Jewish way and that delicate balance of power, he takes all that energy and all that enthusiasm and all that passion and he turns it now to encouraging people to follow Jesus. He had had an encounter with the Jesus who was dead. People he knew had talked to, had seen this Jesus die. He had heard the stories that they stole his body. But here he was talking to that Jesus, and it left him forever changed. And so he gets on boats, and he goes around the Mediterranean Sea, and he visits cities like Ephesus and Philippi and Rome. And, and he visits these cities, and he tells these people about Jesus. Now here's the irony. Here's the turn. Here's the shift in the story. These cities that he's visiting all around the Mediterranean Sea... In Greece and Turkey and Italy, all those cities, those people that are beginning to hear the story of Jesus, they don't have the heritage of Paul. 
They don't have the Jewish custom. They don't know the background. They don't have any real acquaintance with the 613 laws. It's a completely different way of life. And yet they hear the story of Jesus. They hear Paul say to them, look, you have your own understanding of religion. You have your own culture. But I'm telling you, you can have a connection to God through Jesus Christ that isn't based on rule-keeping, that isn't based on measuring up. You don't have to go to a priest. You can go directly to God. And people by the thousands were turning towards Jesus. They didn't have a Jewish heritage. They didn't have a Jewish custom. They didn't have this Old Testament that what we would call They didn't have that understanding, that underpinning, that worldview. And uh, the, the, rock began, the boat began to rock. See, the early followers of Jesus were Jewish, but the new incropping, the bulk of the people coming to Christ, weren't. They didn't have all the understanding. And for the first time in the history of the church, we see a conflict, what looks to us as a conflict emerging. It's emerging between, well, catch this, now, if you've been at church for like 10, 15 years, um, you're going to be able to understand exactly what I'm talking about here. If you haven't, hang with me, you'll, you'll get it, but a conflict began to emerge between the people who held all the laws and all the customs and had a certain way of being and doing and all the people who didn't know anything about that stuff. They didn't have the custom. They weren't oriented. They felt out of place at the synagogue. They didn't even know what a synagogue was necessarily. They, they had heard about it, but they didn't know anything about it. And this conflict, this culture clash begins to happen. Theologically, it often gets worked out this way. There was a clash between what do we do with the outsiders and bringing them in through the grace of God. That is, they don't have to earn it. They don't have to measure up. And at the same time, the standards we believe God holds for the people who come to him. Truth, grace. So many of us in this room know people, or it's us, or it was our parents, or it's our uncle, it's our nephew, it's our kids. Because of the debate in the modern church, not even the ancient church, between grace and truth, it has left a sour taste in some people's mouth. Now, in the middle of all that, we have one disciple. His name is John. And he wrote the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He followed Jesus, and in the first chapter of his story about Jesus, he says that Jesus was unique this way. Out of all the people that ever lived, he was able to be the perfect embodiment of grace... And the perfect embodiment of truth at the same time. It wasn't a truth-grace conflict. It was the embodiment of both. It wasn't even a balance. Today we need a little bit more truth. And tomorrow we might need a little bit more. It was at the same time, truth and grace coming together. And so John tells stories like, for instance, the woman at the well. And he says that Jesus was able to look at her and say, I don't condemn you for all this sexual junk you got going on in your life. And then he looks at her and says, but don't do it anymore. Truth and grace. And he's able to embody that thing. And she approaches him and she's accepted by him. Before she ever actually lived out the change, she's embraced. And yet she begins to make change in her life. There's a truth-grace coming together in Jesus. And the early church now is going to get the opportunity to live out whether or not they get that character of God. Whether or not they will represent that character of God or whether or not they're going to fall off one side or the other. And it's a big deal. Again, if you've been in church for any period of time at all, you've seen churches struggle with this issue. Is it really grace, or do we have to uphold the standard? And where does the standard fit into grace? 
And what if people don't look like Christians and they call themselves Christians? And what if they don't measure up to our structures and our standards? And that kind of discussion and the craziness around it has caused a lot of people to say, see ya, no thank you, I don't need that. I don't even have a problem with God. I just got a problem with the way you guys do God, the way you talk about him. Now, that's not a new debate. It's not something modern. It didn't just happen to you. You're not the first one. It goes all the way back to the book of Acts, chapter 15. And it's about to split the church in two. It's about to splinter the entire movement. What are you going to do with truth and grace? And yet there's Jesus at the center of the entire movement. It's not even really a church yet. It's certainly not a denomination. It's just a movement of people saying our lives have been radically changed. There's Jesus coexisting perfectly well together. So in your Bible, in Acts chapter 15, if you'd like to turn there, I've got mine on my Kindle because I'm cool. Or you can follow along on the screen behind me if you like. Obviously, that's not true. Um, Acts chapter 15 is where the story begins. Now, I'm going to tell you before we get reading, don't, don't stop this. Here. This is, a, in one sense, a PG-13 because there's some stuff we're going to talk about in here that yeah, no, normally kids don't talk about. And let me, let me just give you a little, little insight. If you're like a part of Four Corners, here's what I'd say to you if this is like your home church. Put your kids in kids' ministry. This is really not the environment for them. We, we need to be free to be able to talk about whatever's in God's word, and I shouldn't have to worry about whether or not there are young ears in here if this is your home church. If you're a relative visitor, uh, like right now that you're relatively new and you got like a young kid in here, let me just let you know that we're going to go uh, somewhere and talk about some anatomy stuff that really uh, might make you a little nervous. So this is your 30-second warning, and nobody will look funny at you at all to get your kid out of here. If this is your home church... Don't send me an email. I don't care. It's in the Bible. We're going to talk about it. We don't let you go into kids' ministry and hang around because that'd be weird. We'd call you a pervert if you did that. And we don't want kids hanging around in here because this is for adults to engage God on the level they understand. No apology about that. It's part and parcel of the way we do church around here. So Acts chapter 15, here's what it says. Certain people came down from Judea. Now, Judea is the center region. It's the hotbed of Christianity. Jerusalem's in there, and Judea is at the center. So certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Now, Antioch is a little bit outside. So in Antioch, you have a blending of cultures. It's not like homogenous. Everybody gets it. And they were teaching believers this. So the new believers who aren't like really Jewish, they were teaching them this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. Mm. So basically, unless you have a surgery, a painful surgery, a surgery that would have happened before the days of anesthesiology, a surgery that would have happened um, that you might would have wanted to have like major drinks of alcohol or wine, but everybody who grew up in a church like mine knows that the wine in the Bible didn't have alcohol in it anyway. At least that's what we were told. It wouldn't have helped you anyway. You would, this kind of surgery is requirement for you to be saved with God, to be in a relationship with God. You've got to have the surgery first. So, so here's the deal. Before you can join our church, you have to go through the new members class. And at the end of the new members class, we're going to give you the surgery. So here's what, here's, what, here's, what, here's what would have happened. Here's what would have happened. There would have been people sitting out in the lobby, and there would been like moms and dads and their kids, and the dads would have been going, honey, I want to. I'm just like scared. I don't know if I can or not. And so the new members class would have been full of women and children. I mean, it would have been. And the men would... This was a rough deal. Now, I'm making a little light of it, but it was no light matter. See, what they were basically saying was, is before you can join the Jesus Club, you have to join the Moses Club. Before you can be in with God, you've got to measure up to all the rules and standards. And even if you don't have a Jewish heritage, even if that's not your custom, your background, you need to get fully acclimated right away before you can be a part of this thing. Now, the problem was, is that Paul, who was Saul on the road, Damascus, light, blinded... 
Paul had been traveling around and the bulk of the growth in the movement was from people who didn't have this heritage. They didn't have this background. They weren't sure what they were going to do. And this created major conflict for Paul because Paul had skin in the game. Let let me say this. Some of you don't give a rat's behind about what I'm saying right now because you don't have skin in the game. You don't have anybody you're investing in. You don't have anybody you're pouring into. You don't have anybody that you're praying for. Your knees are raw because you spent time before God about them and you've been pouring your life into them just praying that one day they'd understand Jesus and they'd commit their lives to him and they'd spend eternity with him. And so what I'm getting ready to talk about for you is going to sound like academic or a history lesson. But I'm telling you, for those of you that have skin in the game and you're pouring into people, this is at the core of what is often the barrier, the final barrier of people coming to Jesus. And Paul knew this. And he said, I've been pouring my heart and soul, my blood, sweat, and tears. I've been shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, bit by a snake. People have lied to me. People promised to support me financially, and they withheld their... I've been out there on my own. And now you're telling me that everybody that's coming to Jesus, I've got a pile on 613 laws on them before they can really be a part of us. And on top of that, they got to have a surgery. No, he wasn't, listen, he wasn't, he wasn't ambiguous about this. He wasn't unemotional about this. He had a passion for people on the outside, hoping that they could make it on the inside. And he saw that what the original followers of Jesus were doing, the people had that Jewish, they were making the first step to Jesus so large so wide the chasm was so far from your outside to your inside that very few people could live up to it pass through it in fact it threatened his entire movement his entire call so he rallies all of his passion and he takes his buddy barnabas both of them are insiders who have a passion for the outsiders and verse 2 says this this brought paul and barnabas into sharp dispute that means they had a good old knockdown drag out fight and a debate with them. Now, I'm sure they did it well, but they had serious disagreement. I'm sure they honored everybody in the conversation, but it was a big disagreement. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, the other people in the church in Antioch, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, the 12, and the elders, people who had esteem in the congregation, who had lived up to the standards, who were seen to have wisdom, and to talk to them about this question. Paul's feelings were, you're messing things up for me here. I'm giving people the message that Jesus gave me that, that, Paul, you were on the outside and you didn't start turning towards me. And then when I saw you turning towards me, I decided I could use you. No, well, you were still way on the outside, Paul. I reached out to you and I want you now, Paul, to go extend this same invitation to people that are way outside. So, verse 4 then. When they finally got to Jerusalem there in Judea, the, the hotbed of the activity... The core of the core, they were welcomed by the church, all the people, and the apostles, and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So before they started, Paul said, let me give you a report. Been to Rome, hundreds of followers of Jesus there. Been to Ephesus, hundreds of followers of Jesus there. Been to Philippi, hundreds of followers of Thessalonica, hundreds of followers of Jesus there. And we're seeing people who know nothing about God, have no Old Testament understanding, have no biblical knowledge, and they're hearing that Jesus was dead and is alive, and you can have a connection to God because of that. And they're committing their lives to Jesus, and they're being changed, and they're growing, and they're learning, and the people are they're listening. They've got their ear because deep down in the heart of every person, whether they had the background or didn't have the background, they had an experience with the resurrected Jesus that left them changed. 
And so when Paul starts telling the story of grace being extended to others, it resonates, even though the conflict is still there. It's a tough thing. So Paul shows up and says, okay, for a year and a half now, I've been planting churches. That's what we call starting churches. That's what we did about seven years ago now. And people all over the world are embracing the message of Jesus. And now you want me to tell them there's some things they have to start doing and some things they have to stop doing? And maybe I need to give them six months of of observation before we really call them insiders and they have to take eight or nine classes before they can really be a, a, called a Christian? You want, you're telling me that I've got to pile on all this stuff. Now verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, let's pause here. See, if you grew up in church, here's what you thought about the Pharisees. They were all outsiders, right? Like they were like Jesus and then the Pharisees. Because in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Pharisees are like they're like the Klingons. They're always the bad guys, right? right? They're always the bad guys. But in the early church, it, the, the message of Jesus was so powerful, and the resurrection was so clear, and people knew eyewitnesses, that even Pharisees said, I don't know what to do with this. You're messing with all my categories, but Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's alive, and I'm connected to God through him. And so even Pharisees were turning to Jesus. They were Pharisees and Christians. Uh, just a little side note. We still have Pharisees in the church, friends. It's okay. We do. And we're trying to talk about that a little bit today. So the Pharisees stood up and said, now listen to what the Pharisees said. This is so classic Pharisees. They said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now you hear law of Moses. I hear law of Moses. We think Ten Commandments. But that's not all they had in mind. They had in mind all 613 laws mentioned in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had to get all of that stuff into them, acclimated to it, and then start actually living up to it. So it wasn't just the knowledge, the behavior had to line up. It wasn't just them to get on the inside of them, they had to start living up to it before. So basically they were saying to Paul, we want you to get back in your little boat and go back to all those cities and tell them they're not quite in yet. They have to follow all these things, make all these lifestyle changes. Now, if you've been in the church for like over 10 years, you have seen... Over the course of your time in church, this same attitude keeps creeping back into the church. The people who are far from God, don't have a relationship with him, have to jump through 85 hoops before they ever really get called a part of us. The, the first step is so large. The gap between being outside of God and being connected with him is so vast. And why do we do that? Because over time, all followers of Jesus tend to create a version of Christianity that looks an awful lot like them. And anybody that doesn't fit that version of Christianity, well, there's questions about them. There's skepticism about them. We, like it or not, friends, churches tend to become a little judgmental. The reason I'm talking about this today is, I believe we're on the brink of unbelievable change in the life of this church. There's a, there's a physical change coming to our, our facilities. We're not going to be here in two weeks. So like, one more week here, and then we're at the Ray Theater. That's just a physical change. But anytime there's a physical change, there's unbelievable opportunity for people to lose focus and get, lose clarity on what really drives the movement. When a family moves from a house to another house, eh, people argue, they fight, the, the routine's been upset. You, you have, sometimes have to rediscover what's going on. When you change jobs, and you're, in other words, at any time of transition, you might lose clarity of what's important. And in my thinking and praying this week, while I've had a lot of time to kind of be quiet and even though I was around other people, I really felt God speaking to me and saying, make sure that as you talk about this fear thing, 
you remind Four Corners that it has never been afraid to take people who are on the outside and give them a black and white invitation to be on the inside. That if Four Corners has ever done anything well at all, it's been that. Now, we have a lot of mistakes and we have a lot of problems in our church. We do. There's no perfect church. I don't know what they all are right now. I just know we do. And I'm sure you know better than I because most of you, you know, you see from your perspective. But one thing that has always been at the heartbeat of this place is we wanted to make that first step to Jesus simple and clear. I didn't say easy because I think it's pretty hard to put your faith and trust in somebody. But we weren't going to stack on all the things that we like and all the... In other words, we weren't going to say, basically, clean up your life. And when you get it generally right, then come try us out. Because we know that a lot of people already have that in their mind. They don't think they could ever be a part of church because if, to be a part of church means they got to they get it cleaned up. And I've actually had people say this to me when I've invited them to church. Then my life is a wreck. And when I kind of get things, you know, sorted out, sorted out economically or sorted out relationally or spiritually or maybe with some dependency issue, when I get it sorted out, then I'll have room in my life to pursue. They feel like then they, it validates them moving closer to God. And they couldn't have missed the whole point of the Jesus movement to begin with. But I know why they think that, because too many Christians, too many churches have basically said that to them. Even if they didn't use those words, that's really what they picked up on, because the churches weren't careful enough to make sure that the first step to Jesus, the raw grace that he offers, is low and accessible and doable by the average person. It's not a new issue. You weren't the first one to experience that. Your friends weren't the first ones to experience that. It happened all the way back in the New Testament. And had they not been spirit-led, had they not been bold and brave, they could have shipwrecked the entire movement here. But they decided to press in. And you're going to discover in the next few minutes two or three key principles that I think will help our church, but not just us, like corporately, although it clearly will. That's really the big thrust in my motivation today. But it will help you individually because if you don't do this right in your own life, if you're a follower of Jesus, what's going to happen? It's going to leave you empty. It's going to leave relational destruction all around you if you don't get this right personally. And it's going to rob you of spiritual power. And I don't want that for you. I don't want you to have a hollow spiritual life. I don't want you to have relational destruction all around you. I don't want you to lack power in your spiritual life to see God work through you. But all those things will happen to you. You will fail here if you don't get right what the early church got right. That's why the Bible, I love it. That's why God includes stories like this that are ugly and messy. You know, fairy tales, they include just enough conflict to keep it interesting. If I were writing the Bible, that's what I would do. I wouldn't tell you the ugly dark side of the story. I wouldn't tell you that the early church had to have a debate over basically racial issues. That's what we're talking about here, cultural issues. I wouldn't tell you that. I'd want you to believe only the best about us. So that in hearing only the best about us, maybe you'd go like, oh, I'd really like to do that thing. God in his wisdom saw fit to share the entire story. For us to see the underside and to see the potential pitfalls. So that in reading these stories and studying these stories, instead of just skipping over them, going, what's circumcision? What's that? You know, why is that? Instead of just skipping over them, we could see that these were real people who had to, at each step of the way, let God guide them and direct them so that they didn't ruin themselves or ruin the entire movement. And that's the story that's still true for us today. We have to let God guide us and direct us. You and your family have to let God guide and direct you. So Paul stands up and he says, verse 6, 
you know, you got to remember what God's been doing. So verse 6 kicks in. The, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, so they, they talked a long time. It didn't get resolved in a second or two. It wasn't a three-minute conversation. This was a big deal. It's like a full-blown conference. How many of you grew up in church and you've been to, like, church business meetings? Aren't those fun? Ugh. Like the word deacon. I hear that now. I'm still like, I'm, you know, I just, it just gets, gets me going. But they had this big knockdown, drag-out church meeting. And Peter got up. Now, Peter, now if you grew up Catholic, you know Peter's at the core you know, like, in, in, in the Catholic tradition, he's the first pope. Whether he's the first pope or not, I don't know, but he was certainly the first primary leader of the church. I think, you know, for all intents and purposes, we could call him the first pope. He, he stands up, so he's a major player. He's the dude. He's at the center of the center, and he stands up, and he says, Now, brothers, brothers, sisters, church, listen to me. You know that some time ago, God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles, that is, the outsiders, the people who don't have our customs, might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So Peter's saying, remember me, like me, Peter, God told me to go to Cornelius. Back in the earlier part of the book of Acts, the first Gentile. God told me to go. And I went and shared with him the message of Jesus. And these outsiders, Cornelius, they became followers of Jesus. God, verse 8, God who knows the heart. Peter's just talking and he said, no, look, I want to show you something. God who knows the heart. It would serve every follower of Jesus in this room to remember this thing that Peter was telling the early church. God knows the heart. See, Ben, me, Ben, I don't know your heart. I just get to see your behavior. I don't know your heart. I just get to see how you talk. I don't know your heart. I just get to see how you dress and how you keep your yard up and what music you listen to and who you hang around and whether or not you park too close to my car and ding it with your door. I don't get to see your heart. I just get to see your behavior. And because that's true of not only me but every person in this room, it's real easy to think then that the weight of God's interest is on people's behaviors. And that's like the primary mover. That's the, the initial in interest. I bring my limitations, because I can't see your heart, to God, and I say, oh, what God's mostly in is just changing your behavior. And that's not true at all. God who knows the heart. God who sees below the surface. God who looks at everything and peers through it with spiritual x-ray vision can deduce what's going on in a person's heart. This is what Peter says. Because God can see the heart, although we can't sometimes. Verse 8. God who knows the heart showed that he, that is God, accepted them, the Gentiles, Cornelius and his kind, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. We had a Holy Spirit experience where it left us changed and God spoke through us, gave us boldness and we witnessed. They did the exact same thing. He did not, verse 9, discriminate between us and them. For he, oh I love this, he purified their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts by faith. That is, when they put their faith and trust in him, he looked at them and said, you're clean. Now we're going to talk, I, 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 know, listen, I know how this goes. If you like me, you grew up in church. Like if you were in my home church right now and I were preaching this, the little old ladies would start slip, flipping through their Bibles trying to find the verses where I'm going to get to the place where I finally tell people to shape up. I'm going to get there. All right. We'll get there, okay? But, but the emphasis here is on making the message of Jesus and the grace that God already extends. See, I don't extend God's grace. That's not my call. My call is to make the grace that's already extended to people clear. And obvious and accessible and understandable. It's not my grace. So who am I then to withhold it? Who am I to pile on? Who are you? Who are the people that wounded you in the church you grew up in? 
I mean, let me tell you who they were. They were misguided at best. They probably didn't mean to hurt anyone. They thought they were doing the right thing because inside of them there's a conflict between do I hold up grace or do I hold up the standard? And it comes together like this. And maybe they hadn't explored fully the implications of what it means to have been like Jesus where they come together perfectly in harmony and neither one is imposed upon and neither one is undermined, but they both flourish perfectly in Jesus. And if the church is the body of Christ, it's the standard we have to press into. It's the standard we have to strive for. Uncompromising preaching of God's word. And at the same time, unbelievable, bold grace extended to people who don't live up to the uncompromised preaching of God's word. I'm telling you, it's a challenge. It was a challenge then, it's a challenge now. Because here's what's going to happen if you do this in your own life. If you become a real grace extender, if that's the first thing people have in their minds when they think of you, there will be a Christian somewhere talking about you, behind your back going, they don't have the right standards. Can you believe who they hang around with? That's what they will do to you. There was a pragmatic issue going on here in the early church as well. All the original followers were Jewish. They were already in. They already did the thing. They already believed it. Nobody had to convince them of anything. Like, these are the standards. They also gave a lot of cash and money to make it happen. And I'm not talking about, like, just a, a, an emotional, um, like, monetary movement where people are like, you know, the insiders, they, they carry the power and the esteem and the influence because they give that. But out of their heart, they gave. And Paul and the followers of Jesus knew that these outsiders who were coming in, they don't understand that it takes money to do the ministry. So if we let a lot of those folks in, what's gonna, how are we going to pay the bills? Again, I'm not talking about somebody getting rich. I know that's what all the wounded people in the room are hearing. I'm not, just the raw, who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to put Paul on the next ship? Who's going to pay that ticket to send him to do the missionary work? Who's going to buy the resources for the widows? Who's going to buy their food? It ain't going to be the new guys because it takes new guys a long time before they ever really get up to speed. Now, I know about that. We built a church for people that are far from God. People who don't like church don't go. And I just thought if people did that, you know, we'd, we'd all be fine. But I realized that sometimes people who first come to Jesus, they don't like behave like the rest of us that have been insiders for a while. They don't know the words to the songs. They don't clap sometimes. Sometimes their kids are, you know, problematic. And sometimes they don't contribute. They don't serve. They don't think about it. And they use language. And, man, if you'd have been around our setup team the first few years of our church, like when we were at the rave, and it's going to happen again. And that first time, one of those heavy stages landed on a guy's hand. They weren't speaking in tongues. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> And people are like, in a church? And we got like, you know, I, I literally got an email. I heard some people saying bad words. I'm like, yes, because you know what happens? It takes sometimes people a while. And ultimately, that's not even our call. Here, here, we're going to preach the truth, and then we're going to let the Holy Spirit. And in the meantime, we're just going to embrace people and make them a part of our group. I'm telling you, it makes people uncomfortable. It makes parents uncomfortable because when you do that, there are teens who don't look like they want their teen to look like. And they're like, oh, if they rub up against them, it's, it's contagious. And yeah, I, I guess it can be, but it's also contagious in the other, other direction because when the Spirit of God is enthused in your life and it's pouring out of you like rivers of living water, it spills out on people around you and the Holy Spirit begins to grow people up when the Word of God is preached uncompromisingly. I then don't have to hold up a barrier. I just have to accept people and preach it, teach it, live it. And God will do the work in the middle of that. And it's a messy, complex issue that churches have failed on all throughout the course of church history. And we can't. We can't fail on this. This is something we can't afford to miss. 
But God knows the heart, showed them he accepted them by giving them the Spirit. Verse 9, he did not discriminate. He purified their hearts by faith. No, verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God? By putting on the necks of Gentiles, outsiders, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. Here's what I'm imagining that Peter said. Hey, Thaddeus, while we're talking about this, how, how's the 613 rules going for you? And I bet Thaddeus was like, uh, can we change the subject? I mean, I've got like 611 of them, but two of them have got me. I, I don't know what the conversation was. Bob, I'm sure Bob was in the room. I don't, I don't know. Bob, how's that going for you? And I bet, I bet some point along the way they all thought, that's debilitating to think that my relationship with God is based on how I'm able to live up to the expectation. My connection to him is based on my ability to earn it. And all of them in the room, I bet, wished that the Holy Spirit was working on their hearts, that they could be free of that yoke and that weight. And they experience the joy that comes from knowing that God loves them and accepts them as they are. And then we'll work with them over time to grow them. But that's not dependent on the relationship. I mean, they can sidetrack it. They can miss some blessings. They can create challenge for themselves. But he's always going to have them in the fold. They'll be doing that within the fold, not outside the fold. It changes everything. How's that going for you, Thaddeus? Bob? Why in the world then would you try to put on other people a yoke you can't even live up to? Why would you make standards for others when you don't even live up to the standards you yourself know? This makes no sense, Peter was saying. So, why would you test God? Why would you get in the way of God's work? And then he says, no, verse 11, we believe it is through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. We don't keep the law well. Why should we expect them to? God can purify the heart, by the way, before you purify your life. He can purify your heart before you drop that habit. And he can purify your heart before you clean up your problem. He can purify your heart before you fix your marriage. He can purify your heart before you deal with that insecurity that causes you to act out and do things that aren't good for you, that might even enslave you. God purifies the heart and begins the work instantly. It may take you a lifetime to work it all out. And he'll be patient with you through the process. Because you will have been on the inside working it out. Not on the outside hoping to get it lined up so that one day you could step into the circle. We as a church have to be crystal clear on this for everybody that walks through our doors. You can be a part of us. And we'll preach the truth. So, when they had finished, James spoke up. Now, this is not any James. <laughs> this is James, the brother of Jesus. <laughs> The fact that he's a, an apostle says an awful lot about the power of the resurrection. Uh, what would your brother have to do to you to convince you he was God? My brother came to me and said I was God. You know what I'd say? Yeah, right. Let me see you walk on water. Let me see you feed the crowd with two pieces of bread. <laughs> I don't know what. But James saw a lot, but at some point along the way, the resurrection, the truth that Jesus was dead, but he's not anymore rung in his ears it was in front of him and he committed his life to jesus and he and peter are leading the church james stands up and he says now brothers listen to me simon or peter has described to us how god first intervened to choose a people for his name from the gentiles it is my judgment we're going to bring this to conclusion he says therefore that we should not let this burn on your brains this is god's word people that we should not make it difficult for the gentiles who are turning to god 
We should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult. Let's state it the other way. We should make it easy. I don't mean reduce standard. I mean make it clear. Make it simple. Remove any barriers we can remove so that people can have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Lord, I'm a sinner, but I'll receive your grace. God, I need you. Would you take me in? We should do all we can to make it as simple and easy as possible. Anything we do to make it unnecessarily difficult, we are resisting God. The biblical language is we're testing God. Instead, verse 20, we should write to them, all the folks in the surrounding areas, telling them to, uh, now listen to this, all 613 rules, all 10 commandments are going to be reduced to three statements. Telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, we've talked about that, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. So, Pull it all down to this, James says, the brother of Jesus, major leader in the early church. He says, we should try not to offend the Jews because this meat thing is a big deal. It's a big deal to them. And they are a part of this. They are the foundation of the church. They was to them first. And they're our brothers. And we don't want to do anything to offend them. At the same time, their rules aren't our rules. But we'll be sensitive. This is a principle for life. This is a principle for churches. Be sensitive. Paul's going to write to Gentiles later, and he's going to say, look, if you eat meat sacrificed to idols, you can still go to heaven. It's no big deal, because there's no such thing as other gods anyway. There's only one God. It's all a farce. But when there are believers around who believe it's a big deal, you're going to want to stop doing that, because people matter more than rules here. Be sensitive to our Jewish brothers, he says. And then he says, and abstain from sexual immorality. Well, Ben, would you like to unpack that? I don't think I need to, do I really, honestly? I mean, most of us know, don't we? And the, the sexual immorality deal is a consistent thing throughout the Bible. You never get away from that. So one of the major obstacles in the early church was that people were going to come to Jesus. They had to attempt to turn away, just like the woman at the well, go and sin no more. And the sexual thing is so integrated to our identity and to our hearts, God wants us to begin moving quickly towards freedom on that path. So he says, you know, to people who would come to Jesus, look, if you're in an affair, you're in the middle of one, you need to stop. Because coming to Jesus means he begins to clean up our lives. It's just the way it works. So... Avoid meat sacrificed to idols. Avoid meat strangled animals and the meat soaking in their own blood. And avoid sexual immorality. Basically, be sensitive to the Jews and live a moral life. We'll get started there. So they write this letter. It goes, Paul gets on a boat and takes it to all the churches around and he reads it. And can you imagine what that was like? All these Gentile followers of Jesus and the letters being opened. It's like, you know, drum roll, please, drum roll, please. And they're all thinking, surgery or no surgery? Please, no surgery. Please, no surgery. Please, no surgery, because I like Jesus, but I don't want the surgery. And they open the letter, and they read, and they say, look, be sensitive to people. Live a moral life. Be sensitive to the people around you. Live a moral life. And you can begin a relationship with Jesus. If you're willing to do that, he'll take you, cover all the rest, and begin to work with you, cleaning you up from the inside. And we'll accept you as our own. You don't have to do anything else. You can be a part of us. And the Bible says that there was great gladness at the good news, and it spread throughout all the region. Listen to me, Four Corners. We can't afford to fail on this. So I boiled it down to just three quick statements. I think that sometimes people fail here, or they're afraid to press in because of the tension that is inherent. And here's the tension number one. That they fail by catering to the insiders more than to the outsiders. They fail by catering to insiders more than attending to outsiders. This is what happens to churches. We're about seven years old. It's likely to happen to us. 
that we will get a, very concerned about us and ours and the way we do it. And if you want to be a part of us, go ahead and just kind of figure it out and take your six months and then, when you, then we'll let you in our group. And it takes major work for churches to not become a church like that. And we've been pretty good on this. But if I have anything on my radar as we make our moves over the next year, it's this. We cannot ever become a church that's more concerned about insiders than we are about outsiders. Here's the deal, friends. If you're already going to heaven, I'm okay if you're mad with me. If you're not yet going to heaven, you get my best attention. And then when I do my job as pastor, I will pray for you fervently, and I will preach the word of God without compromise. But I can handle it if you're mad at me and you're going to heaven. It'll be okay. I, I really can. But if you don't know Jesus and you're struggling, I got all the patience in the world to work with you. Do you hear my heart on this? As one person, as church leadership, as a group of people, you don't have time to focus all of your attention on people that are already in. Because if you do that, nobody else comes in. And you will have failed where the early church succeeded. This happens in families all the time. Kids act like kids. Idiots, dumb and stupid. You were one too. And it creates breaches in families. And it doesn't have to. I'm not suggesting you reduce any standard. I'm saying have all the conversation you need to have, but extend grace in the middle of it. Make sure that they hear grace dripping from every phrase. Then when you talk about the pain they're bringing into their own lives by their stupid choices, you have tears in your eyes, not anger. The early church could have blown it here, but they didn't. And because they didn't, we all get to receive now with clarity the message of Jesus. We have to get this right. Number two, sometimes people fail here because they start talking about instead of having conversations with. You'll talk to your friend about your husband instead of having a conversation with your husband. You'll talk to your small group about the problems in church instead of going to the leadership of the church. You'll talk to your friends about your other friends instead of talking with your friends about your issues. No, they got together and they had an ugly conversation. Some of us are too fearful. We don't have enough boldness to do what's required of us. So the Bible makes it clear when you have a problem with somebody, you go to them and you talk to them. And if you don't do that, keep your mouth shut. Because the only thing you're going to create is drama in your life. You're going to be empty. There's going to be relational casualty around you. And your spiritual vitality will be at an all-time low. The early church gets this right. We have to get this right. We have to. We don't get this right. God will stop using us. And it won't be because he actively removes his blessing. It's just people will come up and go, I don't feel like I fit there. We can't let this happen. You can't let this happen in your life. Number three, we'll fail if we hold to the law more tightly than we hold to grace. The Bible makes it clear. The law or the rules and the structures, they have a place. They teach us that we need God. But they are not our salvation it is the grace of God. Some of you, you live almost a perfect life. I'm in awe of you, and I don't mean any disrespect. And you get to heaven, you're going to have so many more stars than I do in your crown. But when you get to heaven, you and I both will have gotten there by the grace of Jesus. Period. End of discussion. And you might have lived a better and more blessed life. That's one of the great joys of following God. When you walk with him in integrity and you let his spirit speak to you and the truth pours over in you and you're receptive, you have a humble heart, the blessings of God, the windows of heaven open up and it rains on you, you can't contain the blessing when you walk in obedience with finances. You can't contain the blessing when you walk in obedience with sexual purity. You can't contain the blessings when you walk in integrity with honesty. Oh, there's great reason to do it, but that's not what secures you. That's the blessing that comes when you walk with him. 
So we cannot fail here by holding on to the law more tightly than we hold to grace. So what can we do then as a church? What can you do as an individual? I got four things I'd like to suggest to you. Grab out your connect card. This is how we do it around here. We take next steps so that we're not just encouraged, but we actually move forward. Here's the first thing I'd like you to consider. I wonder if while I was talking, God didn't bring somebody to your mind. Maybe somebody who was hurt. Maybe somebody that used to want to be on the inside, but now, you know, they just, they've relegated themselves to being on the outside. Here's the first step. I wonder if God would move you to initiate a real conversation with the person that he brought to your mind today. That is, you go home, you Facebook them today, you email them today, you write them a letter, you call them today, say, I want to sit down and chat with you. If you know of somebody that could benefit from hearing the, with clarity that God accepts them and you accept them just as they are and they can be a part of your life, if, you, if that's where you feel like God, go ahead and do that today. Don't be afraid. This is life-changing stuff. Here's next step B. I wonder if anybody in the room would say, Ben, I will be bold in inviting a specific person to the church at the rave. That's where we're going to be. I don't mean generally inviting people. I mean like the person you're going to pray for. Here's the deal. You don't care about these issues until you have skin in the game. You don't. You don't care because you got yours and everything's fine. Everybody talks the same, looks the same. When you put skin in the game, this stuff matters to you. It matters that people don't do anything to get in the way of God's movement. You don't have skin in the game, it's not that big of a deal. You're thinking like, why are you making a big deal about this? Because i got people I'm praying for that are still on the outside, and God has already given them an open door to come in, and I don't want anything getting in the way of that. I don't want anything getting in the way of God's Spirit using me, this church, somebody else to help people see the, the love of God that's already been extended to them. And I want them in the circle so the Holy Spirit can begin working on their lives, taking the truth of God's Word and begin growing them up and making them into the man or woman of God He'd have them to be. Here's next step C. I wonder if there's anybody that would say, Ben, I need to get more skin in the game by stepping up my giving. Let me just say, it'd make your pastor sleep better at night. It really would. Because people who are just coming into the circle, they don't carry the load. So it's going to cost us. My wife and I are stepping up big time. Because there's great need? Well, of course there's always need. But because we believe that the circle isn't big enough yet. And we want to do what it takes. I'm asking some of you to step up and start obeying God here. And if truth is like a big deal to you, get truth in your own life first. And then let's start talking about other people. Here's the next step, D. I wonder if anybody here today would say, Ben, I'd like to get baptized today. I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I just haven't gone public with it yet. And I need to do that. All you have to do in a minute, we're going to start singing. You get up. There's going to be like 10 people baptized. You've got plenty of time to go back and get some clothes that fit you. Somebody will help you do that. You go into the bathroom and change by yourself. We won't help you with that. And then you come into this room and you stand against the wall. One of our pastors will briefly chat with you because all you have to do is say, God, I want to follow you with my life. I want you to forgive my sin. I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. And you get to be a part of what God's doing. And we just want to celebrate that with you. Let's pray together right now. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your grace. God, thank you for the uh, testimony of the early church. People who were not too afraid. They weren't so timid, but they were bold and brave enough to press into ugly, ugly issues, complicated, crazy, complex situations. God, give us the same boldness. Use us, Lord. Use us mightily. Lord, we lift up each person being baptized today and all those that should be. Thank you, Lord, for the grace of God at work in this church. Help us let never, never, never lose the heart we have for people who are far from you. Help us to hold the door open as wide as we can. We pray it in your powerful and holy name. Amen and amen.